0: the National Archives podcast series. The Germans Are Here, London's First Zeppelin Raid, presented by Ian Castle. Thank you all very much for coming today on such a bright, sunny afternoon. I expected it to be grey and miserable, which gives the right, right mood for it. I was just having a little sort of rehearsal with this yesterday. And, and I realised that the talk actually lasts for about 46 minutes, which is actually 15 minutes longer than the air raid itself. So we should be getting quite a lot of detail um, to, to exchange uh, during the talk. So I think at that point, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll get underway. In five days' time, we will reach the centenary of one of these significant moments in London's history. On the 31st of May, 1915, London was bombed from the air for the very first time. While most people are aware of the blitz of World War II, many are surprised to discover that this was not the first time that German bombs had dropped on the city. So as we edge closer to the 100th anniversary of that fateful day, it seems a good moment to step back in time and look in some detail at what happened during that first aerial assault on the city 100 years ago, the first night of the Zeppelins. As the month of April 1915 drew to a close and Londoners turned their calendars to May, the fears that held sway for many at the beginning of World War I had failed to materialise. Monstrous airships had not sailed over the city like marauding pirate galleons of another era. Murderous salvos of explosive and flaming bombs had not been unleashed on the crowded streets of the metropolis. But although free from attack, London's appearance had changed in those nine months. The war was real, its impact felt by every Londoner. When Britain declared war on Germany in August 1914, the city had no defence against aerial attack. Four days after the declaration, London received its first artillery allocated to an anti-aircraft role when three one-pounder guns were installed to defend the city, or rather to defend Whitehall at the Admiralty, the Foreign Office and the Crown Agents' buildings. Although no one in authority thought they had the range to hit a Zeppelin, it was hoped they would at least force them so high that the accuracy of bomb aiming would be affected. Otherwise, the very limited supply of guns for aerial defence were allocated to ports, docks, munition centres, oil depots and power stations. In October 1914, however, London finally received more artillery with three-inch guns being positioned on Tower Bridge and at Green Park and six-pounders at Waterloo, Nine Elms and the Temple. In addition, five more one-pounder guns appeared at St James Street, Gresham College, Cannon Street Hotel, St Helen's Court and at Blackfriars. New searchlights appeared too. Then, in December 1914, a lone German seaplane flew up the Thames estuary as far as Erith, before it was driven off. In response, more three-inch guns were, were added. Uh, the three guns came in at Clapton Orient Football Ground, Honor Oak, and at Parliament Hill. The other obvious change to the city at that time was the blackout. The first attempt to instigate lighting restrictions proved largely ineffective, so, on the 1st of October 1914, the Commissioner of Police issued a new order. It required that all powerful outside lights be extinguished, that street lights be extinguished or shaded, that railway lighting be reduced to a minimum, that lights inside shops and other premises be shaded, and that lights on buses and trams should just be sufficient for the collection of fares. The war, as a journalist observed, had ushered in a new dark age. He wrote, For the first time, Londoners knew what it was to be hampered a little by the darkness. They took it in the Londoners' way, good-humouredly, which is almost more than might have been expected, because the idea that his city might be in danger has scarcely yet penetrated the Londoners' easy-going mind, taking the whole thing as a not very good but tolerable joke. Another uh, journalist described how the war had changed the London sky, All night long, the sky was being explored by two searchlights. One is stationed over the middle gate of the entrance to Hyde Park at Hyde Park Corner, where the other is, I cannot say. They are very beautiful to watch as their brilliant lines of light, like gigantic flaming swords, cross one another, probing the skies, piercing to heights where our eyes cannot follow. What seek they? Zeppelins. The journalist wrote those comments on the night of the 31st of December, 1914. While Londoners looked to the skies on that New Year's Eve, wondering when the Zeppelins would come, unbeknown to them, they really had not been in danger at all. But that was all about to change. When war broke out in August 1914, despite fears of great fleets of German airships immediately bearing down on Britain, Germany actually only had 11, one belonging to the Navy and 10 with the Army. But three of these were former commercial vessels, now mainly used for training purposes. And of the remaining seven active Army airships, four were lost in the opening month of the war while flying at low level over the front. And on top of this, Kaiser Wilhelm had refused permission to commence the aerial bombing of Britain He, like so many others, believed the war would soon be over and did not want to be held responsible for destroying London's cultural heritage. So while Londoners looked warily at the sky searching for zeppelins, in Germany they waited impatiently for new ones to be built. But by the end of 1914, the Navy had five new zeppelins while the army had added four by January 1915. That same month, under mounting pressure, the Kaiser finally relented and gave permission for the opening of an aerial campaign against mainland Britain, but insisted on the exclusion of London as a target. The first Zeppelin raid on Norfolk took place on the 19th of January 1915. The following month, the Kaiser added the London docks as a target, but expressly forbid the bombing of the capital's residential areas. Then in May, he extended his approval to allow bombing east of the Tower of London. Not until July 1915, however, did the Kaiser uh, authorise the whole of London as a legitimate target. At the beginning of May 1915, Londoners had been reading about Zeppelin raids in their newspapers for almost four months, but it all seemed so far away and surprisingly ineffective. That first raid in Norfolk killed four and injured 16, but two raids that took place in April, striking the northeast and in Essex, resulted in injuries to just four people. It was not the stuff to instill panic in the British public, and in London it had a negligible effect on everyday life. The war, though, did make a very real impact on the city at the beginning of May 1915. <laughs> On the 7th of May, a German U-boat sunk the Cunard liner, Lusitania, off the coast of Ireland. Serious anti-German writing broke out in Liverpool, her home port, over the weekend of the 8th and 9th of May. Then, on the 10th of May, a Zeppelin bombed Southend-on-Sea, a popular seaside destination for Londoners. These incidents brought simmering anti-German feeling to the boil the next day when rioting broke out in parts of the East End against businesses owned by Germans and Austrians, or indeed with a name that just sounded like it might be German. The mobs weren't fussy. The unfortunate landlord of the Thatch House pub in Leightonstone had all his windows smashed and had to seek police protection for himself. He was targeted because of his name. It was Strachan, and he was a Scot. Then on the 12th of May, these eruptions of hate spread like wildfire across the capital, from Tottenham in the north to Wandsworth in the south, but particularly in the east end. For those caught in the middle, it was a terrifying experience. As one newspaper put it, every man seemed to have given up the day to the anti-German orgy. Government sources estimate the damage caused by this outbreak of public disorder at £20,000. The next day, some level of normality returned to the streets of London, but more Zeppelin attacks took place on Southeast England later that month. It seemed clear to those in authority that it was only a matter of time before the German raiders reached London, and they were right. In Germany, the Army Airship Service took delivery of a new Zeppelin, LZ-38, at the beginning of April 1915. This was larger and more powerful than the previous models. With approval from the Kaiser to commence restricted bombing raids on London, the army prepared to make the first strike against the capital. Thus, LZ-38 began a gradual build-up prior to striking at the ultimate goal. On the 29th of April, LZ-38 attacked Ipswich and Bury St Edmunds. On the 10th of May, it bombed Southend the raid that preceded the anti-German riots in London, followed on the 17th of May by the raid on Ramsgate and then a return to Southend on the 26th of May. Five days later, on the 31st of May 1915, all was ready. The officer commanding LZ-38 was 35-year-old Hauptmann Eric Linards. Linards had joined the army in 1898, serving with the 5th Infantry Regiment. For 10 years, with the last three years of those as adjutant. In 1908, he became commander of the Army's Technical Academy, before transferring to the 1st Airship Battalion in 1912. The following year he became an instructor and then uh, uh he became an instructor with the Airship Battalion and then he moved to serve on Army Zeppelin Z-4, with LZ38 then becoming his first sole command. His forays against South End and Ramsgate had taught him the best route and the positions of anti-aircraft guns near the coast and he knew London too. In 1910 he had spent some time in the city. Throughout the morning of the 31st of May There was great activity at the zeppelin shed at Evere, outside Brussels as the ground crew prepared LZ-38 for the raid. Engines were tested, ballast tanks checked, hydrogen topped up and about 120 bombs carefully loaded. The majority, 90, were incendiary bombs. In total, they weighed about a tonne and a half. LZ-38, 536 feet long, powered by three 210-horsepower Maybach engines, capable of driving her forward, wind permitting, at around 50 miles an hour, was now ready. The ground crew walked her from her shed, holding her down with ropes. Once clear, the propellers were tested, swirling up blinding clouds of dust. Then the order was given to the ground crew to let go the ropes, allowing LZ-38 to rise majestically in the late afternoon sunshine. As LZ38 climbed into the Belgian sky and left Ever behind, Linnards later recalled that. It was a beautiful sight, a night of star-spangled skies and gentle breezes, a night so hard to reconcile with a purpose as grim as ours. LZ38 appeared over Margate at around 9.45 p.m., as it did so, an anti-aircraft gun opened fire. Linarts described how the guns spat viciously and how the crew heard shells screaming past us. In fact, the guns below only fired two rounds, but it was enough to force Linarts to increase his altitude and speed. He then approached the Essex coast. He came inland north of Shubriness and skirted South End. It was familiar territory after his previous raids. As he crossed Essex, the sound of engine noise was reported over Wickford at 10.40pm and at Brentwood about five minutes later. The great expanse of London lay just 20 minutes away. In London, the 31st of May had been like any other ordinary Monday. In Stoke Newington... Albert Lovell, a 39-year-old clerk, had spent a pleasant evening at home in Alcombe Road with his wife Eleanor and two friends who had come to visit. His two women visitors retired to bed at 10.30, sleeping in a room at the top of the house. Shortly afterwards, Albert Lovell popped out to post a letter. The moon was rising and full, the weather fine, and just a light wind blew. Less than a mile to the south, Samuel Leggett, A 38-year-old delivery man for a mineral water company was at home in Cooper Road. He and his wife occupied rooms on the first floor of number 33. At 10.45pm, Samuel was sitting in the armchair reading the paper and chatting to his wife, Elizabeth, who was in bed in the same room. Their five children, including the eldest, Elizabeth May, aged 11, and three-year-old Elsie, the youngest, were asleep in the adjoining room. Another half mile on, Henry Good, a 49-year-old pepper grinder by trade, was at home with his wife, Caroline. They rented three of the four rooms on the first floor of a three-storied house at 187 Bald's Pond Road. Sarah Coningsby, a 53-year-old widowed charwoman, occupied the other room on the same floor. The owner of the house, Thomas Sharpling, a builder, lived on the ground floor with his family. Mr and Mrs Good's recently married son, also called Henry, had visited his parents earlier in the evening, but now they were preparing for bed. Police stations all across North and East London had their routines broken at 10.55pm when the shrill ring of the telephone brought the long-feared news. Aircraft raid impending. But no air raid warning for the public followed. London didn't have one in place for another two years. Five minutes later, sub-inspector Locking of the special constabulary could not believe his eyes when the unmistakable cigar shape of a Zeppelin appeared high in the sky over Stoke Newington Station. Linartz and Zeppelin LZ38 had arrived over the capital. Linartz continues his account. The quivering altimeter showed at our height was 10,000 feet, almost two miles high, the air was keen and we buttoned our jackets as we prepared to deal the first blow. I mounted the bombing platform. My finger hovered on the button that electrically operated the bombing apparatus. Then I pressed it. Vivated. Minutes seemed to pass before above the humming song of the engines there rose a shattering roar. In fact, the first missile released by Linats was an incendiary bomb. These did not explode but burst into flames and burnt at a searingly high temperature. They were designed to smash through roof tiles and set fire to joists and other timber. That first incendiary uh, struck a chimney, then smashed through the roof of Albert Lovell's house at 16 Outcram Road in Stoke Newington. Lovell had just returned from posting his letter when screams echoed down from his guests at the top of the house. the bomb had set fire to their bedroom he bounded up the stairs but their door was locked and the key fallen from the lock in the confusion smoke and fumes that now filled the room undaunted Lovell rescued the two ladies who coughing and spluttering fled from the house in their dressing gowns then together Mr and Mrs Lovell roused their children and led them to safety at a neighbor's house with his family safe Lovell turned his attention to saving his home With no telephone, he grabbed his son's bicycle from the hallway and cycled hard, crying out, fire, fire, all the way to the fire station at Brook Road. The fire was successfully extinguished, damage limited to the upper floor of the house. With his first incendiary bomb now burning, Linutz directed LZ-38 across Stoke Newington High Street and released his first high explosive bomb. At landing, in the garden of 15 Labour's Road, but failed to detonate. As this was London's very first air raid, there were many safety lessons still to be learnt when it came to dealing with unexploded bombs. One can only hope that Constable Forbes was a very quick learner. <laughs> the residents of chesham Road, Dinova Road, Neville Road and Allen Road were next to find themselves in the firing line. One high-explosive bomb, which landed at the rear of houses in Dinova Road, tore off the backs of numbers 43 and 45 and also caused damage to number 41, the home of police inspector Herbert Wells. Amy Grant, living at number 45, suffered severe shock and had her right arm fractured by falling debris. Her brother Percy rescued her and carried her to a doctor. In Neville Road, an incendiary bomb landed on a former coach house at the back of the Neville Arms pub, but proved to be another dud, causing only minor damage. Two doors away from the Neville Arms, however, an incendiary struck number 27, causing a serious fire which gutted five rooms of the house, occupied by George West, uh, a night watchman, and his family. West's 26-year-old son, Alfred, suffered burns to his face. The police dealt with the blaze, Before the fire brigade had arrived the noise of the bombs now brought people out onto the street while some rushed to help neighbors others just looked on too shocked to do anything more no one saw the zeppelin pass over them two miles up in the sky no searchlights pierced the darkness no anti-aircraft guns barked their defiance A bomb that dropped on 102 Shakespeare Road struck the coping, after which it fell to the front area, carrying away the steps, damaging a sidewall and the railings. The bomb also caused damage to 104 next door, where flying debris inflicted minor injuries on the occupier, Charles Pollington and Violet, his six-year-old daughter. Although about ten bombs had fallen so far, injuries had been light. But that was about to change as LZ38 passed over Cooper Road. On the first floor of number 33, Samuel Leggett, as we saw earlier, was reading the newspaper and chatting to his wife while their five children were asleep in the back bedroom. Moments after 11pm, the couple heard explosions. Concerned, Samuel went to the children's bedroom, but as he opened the door, an incendiary bomb smashed through the ceiling, having passed through the room above on the second floor, occupied by rose clark and her little niece known to everyone as curly smoke and flames quickly filled the room as mr leggett bravely battled to save his children while mrs leggett ran into the street in a nightdress screaming for help a neighbor a mr c smith recalled hearing a, a terrible rushing of wind and a shout of fire and then even more chilling the germans are here Battling the flames and suffering serious burns to his hands and face, Samuel Leggett dragged his children, all also suffering burns, from their bedroom inferno, which moments before had been a peaceful haven. But Samuel wasn't finished. He dashed up to the top of the house and rescued young Curly too. Amidst the confusion, smoke and flames, neighbours crowded around to help. For a moment, Mr and Mrs Leggett looked around for their youngest daughter, three-year-old Elsie, but someone, meaning well, said they thought a neighbour had taken her to safety. Traumatised by the whole experience, the Leggates took themselves to the Metropolitan Hospital in Kingsland Road, while a neighbour carried 11-year-old Elizabeth May, who had suffered serious burns. Sadly for the Leggates, the trauma of that night had only just begun. At about four in the morning, Police Constable Churchill entered the Leggett's burnt-out home, and discovered that little Elsie had not been carried to safety. In the smoke-blackened bedroom, he found her little charred body buried beneath the still-smouldering debris. And yet there was still more dreadful news to come for the distraught family. A few days later, their eldest daughter, Elizabeth May, died in hospital, her death attributed to shock from burns as the result of a bomb flung from a hostile airship. Distance from the personal horrors his bombs were causing, Lynette's continued southwards, dropping bombs across the Mildmay Park area of Dalston, where they caused a few minor injuries and slight damage to property. But the fire brigade was quickly in attendance, dealing with the fires that broke out. But the next tragedy was just seconds away. At 187 Balls Pond Road, Henry Good, Jr., who had visited his parents... Henry and Caroline Good earlier had left them at about 9.30. Shortly after 11pm, 22-year-old Henry Jr. awoke to the shocking sound of explosions. He jumped out of bed and from his front door saw flames in the night sky from the direction of his parents' home. He quickly changed and rushed to the scene. Two incendiary bombs had crashed through through the house to the basement, setting fire to the staircase, which now burnt furiously. On the ground floor, Thomas Sharpling heard a bang, saw smoke and quickly roused his wife, son and three daughters and got them out of the house. Unable to use the stairs, he then ran to the side of the house and shouted up to Mr Good. Getting no answer, he grabbed a brick and threw it through the window. As there was still no response, Sharpling concluded that Mr and Mrs Good must be out. Henry Good Jr now reached his parents' home He pushed through the crowd that had gathered and into the garden next door, from where he could see his parents' broken window. A fireman assured him that the occupants of the house were safe, as indeed the Sharplings were. Henry then went to his grandparents' house to see if his parents had sought refuge there, but there was no sign of them. Police Constable Barnett was standing nearby when the bomb struck the house on Balls Pond Road. He reported hearing the sound of the Zeppelin's engines, saw a bomb drop, and then the house burst into flames. As he approached, he saw a woman at a front window, pleading for help. It was Sarah Coningsby, who had a room on the same floor as the goods. The policeman grabbed a ladder, but due to the intense heat, he was unable to reach her. Instead, he secured a blanket and, with the help of others, held it out so she could jump to safety, suffering only slight injuries in the process. Only around midnight was the whereabouts of Henry and Caroline Good finally revealed. With the flames extinguished, Constable Barnett placed a ladder against the house again and peered into the blackened smoking room at the back. There, kneeling by the bed, were two figures as if in prayer. But they weren't in prayer. They were dead. Henry and Caroline Good were naked, their clothes burnt from their bodies, All that remained was a small band of woollen jersey on Henry's arm. That arm was tenderly around his wife's waist. The flames had burned all the hair from Henry's body, while Caroline gripped a large piece of her own hair in her hand. The doctor who attended the scene gave evidence at the inquest and agreed that she had probably snatched at her own hair in agony. The doctor pronounced death due to suffocation and burns. But how tragic their last moments must have been. Unable to effect an escape from the fiercely burning building, the couple, married for 27 years, knelt down together by the bed and died in each other's arms. Lynette and LZ-38 now followed the line of Southgate Road. Eight or nine bombs fell there where they caused only minor damage, but the shock was great. One resident, Mr A.B. Cook, uh, later recalled... Terrific explosions startled us as bombs fell just outside my house. People flung up their windows and saw an astonishing sight the roadway, a mass of flames from the incendiary bombs. Flames, they reached a height of 20 feet. A policeman ran up, his helmet in his hand. Get inside, he shouted. They're here. Then people realised what was happening. The shock that people were experiencing had tragic results nearby. In Southgate Grove, the sound of exploding bombs reached Eleanor Willis, a fragile 67-year-old spinster living at number eight. She became seriously ill. Three days later, she fell from her couch and died. At her inquest, the jury returned the verdict. Death was due to shock following bombs dropped from hostile aircraft. Over Hoxton now, LZ-38 continued dropping bombs. In his account... Linnartz described his view. One by one, the bombs moaned and burst. Flames sprung up like serpents goaded to attack. Taking one of the biggest fires, I was able by it to estimate my speed and my drift. That biggest fire may well have been one that engulfed and gutted a cabinet maker's premises at 31 Ivy Street. Or maybe it was at 5, Bacchus Walk, where flames consumed the premises of another cabinet makers, as well as that of a toy company. And between those two conflagrations stood the house of Herman Morris, a Jewish tailor living at 49 Ivy Lane. An incendiary bomb smashed through the roof and set fire to the house, where only the prompt actions of a neighbour, Henry Barrett, saved Morris's two young daughters, Hilda, aged four, and Dora, just 18 months old, from the flames. Fires were burning all over Hoxton now. At 329 Hoxton Street, a great number of boxes in the the yard of a bamboo bamboo furniture manufacturer were ablaze. Peter Begovich, a 44-year-old Russian night watchman, fled in terror from the burning, burning premises. Unfortunately for him, he ran straight into an angry crowd. They accused him of being a German and of starting the fire. Then, in the formal words of a police report, he was ill-treated by the crowd, which resulted in him needing medical attention later in hospital for eight cuts to his head. But for Hoxton now, the worst was over. Away to the southeast, Shoreditch was busy that Monday night. Its music halls were doing a good trade. And in Whitechapel, Greenberg's Pavilion, a popular picture house, would soon be emptying its customers into the commercial road. (coughs) Nearby, Isaac Lerman, a Russian-Jewish tailor, and his wife Rachel were waiting for the return of their 16-year-old daughter, Leah, who had gone to Greenberg's with a girlfriend. A street away, another tailor, Louis Rubin, and his wife Sarah were growing increasingly concerned by the late return home of their eight-year-old son, Samuel, who had also gone to Greenberg's. Having passed over Hoxton, Lynettes continued on his trail of destruction his next batch of bombs descended around Shoreditch High Road. Three incendiaries landed on the roof of the Shoreditch Empire Music Hall, where a performance was still in progress. They made a large hole in the roof and damaged the ceiling above the stage and a dressing room. As plaster rained down, only the swift actions of the manager, who addressed the audience from the stage, prevented a panic. Then, a report concludes, the band played lively airs while the audience left the house in an orderly manner. Other bombs fell close by, then three smashed through the glass roof of the main shed at the Great Eastern Railway's Bishopsgate Goods Yard, but caused only minor damage. From his position over Shoreditch, it would have been simple for Linnartz to strike at the very heart of the City of London. As he wrote, There were the old familiar landmarks, St Paul's, the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace dreaming in the light of the moon which had now risen but the Kaiser's orders were specific bombing was confined to the area east of the Tower of London so LZ-38 steered away from the city the unfortunate citizens of Whitechapel would suffer instead a number of bombs fell across Spitalfields causing little damage then over Whitechapel the first three bombs struck at the core beliefs of many a churchyard A synagogue and a bonded warehouse full of Johnny Walker's whiskey. (laughs) At about eleven fifteen pm, the audience that had enjoyed the evening performance at Greenberg's Picture House had already emerged out into the commercial road and were dispersing. But as they did so, the night sky filled with an extraordinary sound—exploding bombs. Looking back towards Shoreditch, the sky glowed an eerie red. Amongst the crowd was 16-year-old Leah Lerman and her friend. Also in the crowd was 8-year-old Samuel Rubin, whose parents were worrying about his late return. All three were only a few minutes from their homes. As the bombs began to fall in Commercial Road, everyone ran for cover. In the turmoil, Leah Lerman and her friend lost each other. Both Leah and Samuel Rubin ran into Christian Street. As they did so, A bomb exploded. A policeman, standing about 200 yards away, ran to the spot and was joined by a colleague. There they found Samuel Rubin, slumped in a doorway, a pool of blood already spreading inexorably around him. He was dead. They found Leah, too. She had grievous injuries, wounds to her neck, face, a deep lacerated wound to her right breast, and injuries to her elbow and thigh. But she was alive, just 11 others in the street, bewildered and shocked, bore painful injuries. Now, desperately worried about the absence of his son, Samuel's father, Louis, went out to search for him. He heard that a boy had been injured and taken to the London hospital. There he found Samuel lying dead on a stretcher with, as was stated at his inquest, wounds to his abdomen, metal fragments in his shoulder and other injuries to his legs and hands. The police report was more candid. Young Samuel had been disemboweled and mutilated. Leah's parents were also searching for their daughter. They eventually found her in hospital in the early hours of the morning. Her mother described her as unconscious and hurt all over. Leia never recovered and died a few hours later. These two marked the last civilian fatalities of the raid, but LZ-38 still had more bombs to drop. After dropping an explosive bomb on the roadway at Burslem Street, LZ-38 steered back across the commercial road, taking a northeast course, having come within 500 yards of the London docks. Six bombs fell across Stepney, but none of these caused any personal injury or serious damage. Linitz was now on his way home. He'd still not come under attack, did not wish to tempt fate. As he steered out towards Leytonstone, he readied his last six bombs. The first fell on 26 Colgrave Road, Stratford. On the ground floor lived 42-year-old warehouseman John Stacey, his wife Mary, and their two sons. Upstairs lived 60-year-old Peter Gillies, a carpenter at a nearby brewery, and his wife Emma. Herbert Osborne, who lived at 30 Colgrave Road, told the police, I heard the droning of an aeroplane, but I could not see anything. According to the noise, it came lower, and then I saw the bob drop. It was simply a dark object, and I saw it drop through the roof of number 26. The bomb and incendiary crashed through the roof and passed about five feet from Peter and Emma Gillies as they lay in bed. It smashed right through a wooden chair in the room, through the floorboards, down to the hallway on the ground floor where the now burning bomb dug a hole 12 inches deep. Smoke and fumes filled the hallway while flames caught the floor and wallpaper. John Stacy immediately leapt out of bed and unsuccessfully attempted to extinguish the flames, helped by a neighbour. Eventually Stacy managed to lift the still burning bomb by its handle and throw it into the road from where a policeman Put it in a bucket of water and carried it hissing and spitting to West Ham police station. Linlith dropped his final salvo on Leytonstone. Bombs fell on Florence Road, Park Grove Road, Grandly Road and Dyers Hall Road. Most of the damage was minor, and only two people, Rebecca Green and Thomas Gilbert, suffered slight injuries. The very last bomb of this first London air raid landed on forty six Phillybrook Road, the home of Albert Fisher. It damaged the roof, ceiling, and the front and back bedrooms. But by the time Mr Fisher realised what was happening, LZ thirty eight had gone. The first London air raid, which started in Stoke Newington and ended in Leytonstone, and which had lasted less than thirty minutes, was over. Although the anti-aircraft guns in London stayed silent throughout, the British defences had one last, defiant gesture to make. Hartman-Linitz's account shows this caused him some concern. You could see ahead of us the sea, through which the moon had laid a silver path to guide us home. As we crossed the black ridge of the shore, we were met with a further attack from the anti-aircraft guns at Burnham and Southminster. Shell after shell whizzed past, some burst dangerously near. On, on we flew, and at last we were out of range, and the firing died down. The mobile naval detachment at Burnham fired off 179 rounds of one pounder ammunition, and the gun at Southminster set up 20 rounds, both without success. The aircraft defending London that night fared little better. In all, 15 aircraft were in the sky flying from Chingford, Dover, Eastchurch, Hendon, Rochford and Westgate. But at least two of the 15 only took off after LZ-38 had departed and just one, a Blériot parasol flown by Flight Sub-Lieutenant A.W. Robertson out of Rochford, actually saw LZ-38. The Raider was ahead of him on its inward flight at a greater height, Robertson decided to follow the Thames and attempt to intercept it, but his engine failed, forcing him to crash land in the mud at Leon Sea. He survived without injury. Another pilot that night, however, was not so fortunate. With a Sopwith with the only serviceable aircraft available at Hendon, two pilots took her up. Flight Lieutenant Douglas Barnes as pilot, with Flight Sub-Lieutenant Ben Travers volunteering to act as his observer gunner. It appears Barnes and Travers didn't take off until 11.30pm, after LZ38 had already turned for home. Reports suggest they became disorientated and decided to make an emergency landing at Theobalds Park in Hertfordshire. Something told Travers to go against correct procedure, and he unfastened his seatbelt as they descended into low ground fog. The Sopwith hit the ground hard at high speed, bounced twice and then turned over on its back. The first impact jettisoned Travers clear of the aircraft, but Douglas Barnes died in the wreckage. Ben Travers later recovered from his injuries and returned to flying, and later went on to become an extremely successful playwright and novelist. Back in London, the police reported positively on their night's work. All police areas echoed the sentiments in in the report issued by H Division, which covered the area from Shoreditch to Stepney. The report states, A considerable number of persons quickly assembled in the streets, particularly at Shoreditch High Street, Whitechapel Road, Commercial Road and Christian Street, but they were all generally amenable to police and exceedingly well behaved. There was no panic or disorder. However, this lack of disorder by the crowds may have been in part due to the sheer numbers of police, both regulars and specials, on the streets that night. H Division had called out 475 officers, while at K Division, where only two bombs dropped, an immense army of 955 police officers assembled, ready to react to the slightest trouble. The following day, when the police presence was less evident, the mood of the crowd changed. Sylvia Pankhurst, working for women's welfare in the East End at the time, had been close to the bombing. In the morning after the raid, vast numbers of sightseers descended on the stricken areas, keen to see the damage for themselves. Of those who appeared in Hoxton, she wrote, As Streams of people led the way to the damaged buildings, crowds mostly made up of women gathered before each ruined home. <clears throat> One in Cooper Road, where a child had been killed, was still inhabited. A soldier in khaki stood at the door, striving in vain to keep back the press of human bodies surging against it. In the ashes left by the fires which had ravaged homes, nothing save the twisted ironwork of the bedsteads could be identified. In this environment, rumours spread quickly. Many claimed to have seen lights signaling to the Zeppelin raider. It was time to make the Germans in, the, in their midst pay those that remained after the riots earlier in the month anyway. The Times newspaper gave a brief report on damage to property, but Sylvia Pankhurst, who witnessed some of the disorder at close hand, gave a far more personal view of the terror on the London streets. Down the street, a a babel of shouting, tremendous outcry. A crowd was advancing at a run, a couple of lads on bicycles leading, a swarm of children on the fringes screaming like gulls missiles were flying in the centre of the turmoil men dragged a big stout man stumbling and resisting in their in their grasp his clothes whitened by flour his mouth dripping blood they rushed him on new throngs closed around him from another direction rose more shouting a woman's scream the tail of the crowd dashed off towards the sound crowds raced to it from all directions fierce angry shouts and yells A woman was in the midst of a struggling mob Her blouse half torn off Her fair hair fallen Her face contorted with pain and terror Blood was running down her bare white arm A big drunken man flung her to the ground She was lost to sight Oh my God, oh they're kicking her A woman screamed Pankhurst pleaded with a soldier standing nearby to intervene But he just replied Why should I? Then a military car drew up and she asked the officer inside if he would take the woman away. I don't think we can, he answered. We're on military business. Pankhurst then describes how the mood of the mob changed, its anger seemingly satiated, how pitying hands picked up the woman who had now fainted and supported her, while someone attempted to tidy her hair. Those people who moments before had been shrieking their anger were now standing silent and awed. Finally, the police arrived and heavy-handedly dispersed both the crowd and the victim. A calm finally settled over the city. London had been subjected to assault from the air for the very first time, but the fears of uncontrollable fires, mass death and panic on the streets had not materialised. Although LZ-38 had flown unmolested over the capital and the fire brigade reported 41 fire incidents, Only one of these was considered serious and required a district call-out, the majority being dealt with by local appliances, policemen and the public. LZ38's raid had caused seven civilian deaths and injured 35, with material damage estimated at a little under £19,000, which was in fact just less than the cost of the damage caused in the anti-German riots almost three weeks earlier. One immediate effect of the raid was the positioning of three more anti-aircraft guns at Blackheath, Finsbury Park and West Ham, uh, filling gaps in the outer defence line. This was the start of a steady stream of improvements to London's air defences. Although German airships bombed the capital on eight more occasions, because of these evolving defences and improved weapons, by the autumn, of of 1916, London was no longer considered a viable target for airships. While Zeppelins continued to attack the Midlands and North, from the summer of 1917, Germany handed the task of striking against London to her long-range bomber aircraft, but that is another story. In the meantime, however, London had faced up to the Zeppelin menace for the first time and emerged unbowed. And what of the Londoners' experience? For those unfortunate enough to find themselves in the path of the Zeppelin raiders, their experience was one of terror and fear. But for those looking on from afar, the sight of one of these gaseous monsters, as Churchill once called them, shining silver in a dark night sky, when caught by a sweeping searchlight, held a terrible fascination, one that still holds true to this day. They could uh, inspire both fear and dread, but also awe and fascination in equal measure. Back in Germany, the crew of LZ-38 were enthusiastically welcomed home as heroes. The German newspapers extracted every ounce of bombastic rhetoric they could muster to celebrate the occasion. One, in particular, captures this mood. At last, the long yearned for punishment has fallen on England the punishment for the overflowing measure of sin's past. It is neither blind hatred nor raging anger that inspires our airship heroes, but a solemn and religious awe at being the chosen instruments of the divine wrath. In that moment when they saw London breaking up in smoke and fire, they lived a thousand lives of immeasurable joy, which all who remain at home must envy them. In Britain, these same men simply became known as the baby killers. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 26th of May 2015 at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.